The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Tuesday, February 27th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and we bring you election news of a candidate who cannot possibly win. It's Stacey Dash, the actress spoke at the Republican National Convention and was in the movie Clueless and I suppose has some other credits. She is running in California's 44th. She wants to be the Republican nominee and then serve the voters of the 44th who voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump by 71%. So that shan't happen. But what caught my eye about Dash is that in almost every headline about her announced, uh, proposed, uh, hoped candidacy is the phrase clueless Stacy Dash or Stacy Dash of clueless or even sometimes cluelesses, which seems like it's a clarification, but is kind of an insult. She's not even clueless. She's cluelesses. Stacy Dash running for Congress. And I felt bad for Stacy Dash to the extent that I thought about Stacy Dash. And I said to myself, why can't they just get another credit in there? I'm not that familiar with the film oeuvre of Stacey Dash, so I checked it out. And the reason they don't give her many other credits in the headline is she was not in anything else you would recognize. And if they referenced any other movie she was in, I don't think that would be good for her candidacy either. View from the tops, Stacey Dash. Oh, that that is not good for someone who is trying to convince herself she's a woman of the people. Or how about this one? Mo Money's Stacey Dash. Oh, that is not good to match the populist mood. Renaissance man Stacey Dash. Uh, I know we're on the vanguard of gender fluidity, but I don't think Ms. Dash would like that. They also wouldn't want to identify the house hopeful as I could never be your woman's Stacey Dash or CSI crime scene investigations Stacey Dash. Anyway, she just played a, a lab tech on that show. And I don't think Ms. Dash would want them crediting her first film role as she tried to represent a district that voted for Hillary Clinton 71%. Stacey Dash is in enemy territory. On the show today, I will spiel about the point of democracy. I think it's electing former Alicia Silverstone's co-stars to Congress, isn't it? No, it's a little more than that. But first, a conversation that I'm so excited for. Well, I already have. I'll be honest with you. I already have it. But when I had it, I was excited. And you'll be excited too when I tell you it's Maria Konnikova. She is here to play Is That Bullshit? Poker Tells Edition. Joining me now is Maria Konnikova, and I always ID her as the author of The Confidence Game. But there's a new book coming out, and this will have an effect, this will have an impact on this segment of Is That Bullshit? Hello, Maria. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are the, you? I'm well. I'm, I'm heartened. I think we talked about this before, but I want to talk about it now yeah. as we get into our topic. You have been doing what in the name of literature? Poker. Poker. I've, I've yeah. become a gambler in the name of literature. Uh-huh. Although poker's not gambling. The, well, it is a game of skill. The yes. courts have uh, decided. And this is in 
the confluence of psychology and poker? Because I know you're a professional chronicler of the psychological. Yeah, yeah. And just poker as a metaphor for life. It is true. Yeah. Okay, so this probably, the people who play poker ask you this less than people who don't, I would assume. But in poker, there is this idea, and that's what we're going to interrogate today. There is this idea that opponents can give away their cards, their intentions, through very subtle gestures or facial expressions. Yes. And this is called tells. Yes. So we are going to play tells, are they bullshit? Okay, so when you became a poker player for the book, you were pretty raw. Like You knew that a flush beat a straight. No, I didn't. You didn't know that a flush beat a straight. <laughs> it would have been good to play poker with you then. Yes, so it would have been. So you came in really, really raw. Yes. What was your understanding of what a tell was back then? Do you remember? I thought that, you know, people would do things like, you know, sweat when they were lying, or for yeah. instance. Well, I, I'd seen rounders. Rounders. So, so so when you eat an Oreo cookie a certain way, yeah. then you're probably bluffing. So, and I've, I've talked to Brian Koppelman, the writer of that film, about this. Of course, in film, you have to exaggerate and visually exaggerate uh, something that's small to make the point. So they take this idea of a tell, which is a small, almost microscopic giveaway, and they blow it up so we, the audience, can understand. Yep. And they have the John Malkovich character, Teddy KGB, twisting an Oreo cookie, and that tells you if he has a good hand or bad hand. And this, in the poker community, has become essentially like Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent in Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> it is the butt of many jokes. It certainly <laughs> is. It certainly is. Have we talked to Koppelman about this? No, but we've eaten some Oreo cookies together. <laughs> that's good. Okay. So that's not what a tell is. But if we took that idea and shrunk it, shrunk it, yep. shrunk it down, would that be what a tell is? A small giveaway? Yeah. A tell is exactly that. Something that tells you something about the strength of an opponent's hand. And it might be something that tells you that the hand is very, very good yeah. or that the hand is very, very bad. At least that is kind of the idea. That's the idea. Right. And also it's, it's based on context. It maybe won't tell yes. you about the hand. It could tell you... If the large bet that the player has made is a bet with confidence or a bet out of fear, it could yes. tell you if the large bet is a bet he wants called or a bet intended to make you to fold, which would be the exact opposite. And I guess these correlate to the strength of the hands. Yes. So how do you educate yourself about tells as you went along your journey of play? Well, so it ends up that I actually knew quite a a lot about it already because my last book was about con artists. Yeah. And so I was very well acquainted with kind of the science of deception and whether you can tell when people are lying, whether you can tell kind of when when you're being conned, basically. And you can. One can. Well, yes and no. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the that's the question. It's really, really complicated. One of the first things you learn when you actually start studying the physiology of lying is that the first thing that we learn to control is our face. Right. So a lot of people try to stare at you, you know, for, for a tell, especially in poker, especially a lot of amateur players, they'll look at the face and be like, hmm, mm -hmm. are you lying or are you telling the truth? And this is true in real life, too. You'll look at someone, you know, look me in the eye and, and yes. tell me the truth. Larry David does Yes, that. yes, just look at me. Yeah. And so if you're looking to see, is someone lying? And that's actually what you're trying to do in poker. You know, when they're betting big, are they lying, which means... They want you to fold or are they telling the truth, which means I have a strong hand and my bet is actually correlated to the strength of my hand. Right. So looking in the face is the wrong place to look because that is the first thing that they will learn to control. So then scientists started thinking, you know, what could possibly tell me if someone is lying, if it's not kind of the soul in the eyes. Mm -hmm. And so they start looking at things like heart rate, 
if you're at a poker table, you can often see that even though you're not measuring someone's heart rate, we're not putting, you know, we're not putting them through a lie detector test, but you can see veins in the neck. So you can see kind of throbbing and you can see it has their heart rate actually increased. Now to do that, you have to have been watching them for a while because you need to know what their baseline is. You mentioned the baseline and that seems to be really important. If I push a big bet into the middle, my heart rate could go up for both of those reasons. Exactly. So this is- I could want to, I'm like, oh my God, is he going to call me? Please call me. Or, oh my God, is he going to fold? So that's actually, so that's actually one of the problems with lie detection and one of the problems with telling whether or not someone is lying in the real world, not just at the poker table, which is sure you can tell if someone is aroused or if there's kind of autonomous nervous system activation. But the thing you can't tell is why. Mm -hmm. Is it because they are lying or is it because there's something else going on? And without an answer to that question, you actually don't know what that arousal is showing you. And so in poker, it can mean I'm nervous, I have a bad hand, or I'm nervous, I have a really strong hand. And in fact, a lot of players will start shaking when they have a really good hand. Right. And that's something that sometimes good players, professional players, try to fake. They will have like a shaking hand as a false tell um, to make people think that they're... That's the other hand. That's the other thing. If we're playing with bad players who have no concept of this, being fidgety might mean something. If we're playing with good players, they might do it on purpose. Then if they're really good, you tell yourself, okay, they're, they're doing the shaky hand because they want you to think they're nervous. Do they do that all the time? Do they know what you know? So they know you, Maria, are this expert on tells. Maybe they'll show, they'll put in their bet and consciously not be shaky, figuring that you peg them for faux shakiness. And this is exactly why it's so incredibly difficult to tell if someone is lying, because these kinds of iterative processes go on all the time. And what ends up happening with expert interrogators when it comes to law enforcement, so when you're talking about people who are supposed to be kind of the best at telling if someone is telling the truth or lying, I was able to interview a person who was kind of a human lie detector. Yeah. So Paul Ekman, who is the guy who studies kind of emotion and um, has done a lot of work on microexpressions. Yeah. Um, is he in Blink? Is he the guy in Blink? Um, I've never Malcolm's seen, book. Is about he in Blink? Quick oh, yes, he is in Blink. Yeah. Yes. So he studies microexpressions, and the idea behind that is that there's leakage. So if you have kind of this cognitive load, that means that even though you can have this very clear facade and demeanor, that cognitive load will explode in like this microexpression that will just be a fraction of a second, and some people can see that. And even among good players, so you won you won a big tournament recently. I did, yes. Okay, how? So the last hand, how long had you been playing? I'd been playing for over three days. Okay, and you get there. This is not a Stanford prison experiment. You get some breaks in between, yes. but it just takes a lot out of you. Yes. So even if you're playing against guys who know how to do the shaky on purpose thing, the more you're worn down, I would expect the m- yes. more likely some leakage would occur. Absolutely. Maybe someone could pick up a teller or a microexpression. Yes. Though let's let's talk about how valid microexpressions are. Right. So first, microexpressions do exist. That work is solid. You know, they happen. And there are people who can see them. However, the best liars in the world, so the con artists that I worked with, psychopaths, people who just do this all the time, they don't actually have leakage when they're lying because to them it's totally natural. They have no conflict. It's not a problem at all. And so some of these human lie detectors say, you know, when I go to the police station to try to help them out in interrogations, these people petrify me because I can't tell if they're lying or not. 
because they're not just like your average human being because they're experts at lying. Now, if you think of the best poker players, they a lot of them are experts at lying. That said, they're not psychopaths, we hope. Um, maybe some of them are. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there might be some overlap. And so, yeah, the more tired you are, the more likely you are to kind of leak something. It's probably not going to be in your face in poker, but that's kind of the next step. So what are you least conscious of? That's why being tired is actually a good indicator of when you might be able to give off tells and when someone else might be able to pick them up. The problem is the person picking them up is also very tired. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you're kind of, you're both, uh, you're both a little bit worn out. But what are you not conscious of? So there was one study that was done in poker that had people look just at hands. Yeah. So cut out the entire top part of the body. Just look at what the hands are doing with the chips. And these were people who didn't know anything about poker, and they saw footage of the World Series. And they were able to tell with better than chance accuracy who was strong and who was weak just by looking at how they put chips into the pot. And these are good players making the This World is the World Series. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. So, how, and you have to put chips into the pot. You right, can't, right. Um, so that's that, yeah. so you have to put chips into the pot, and some players are very careful to try to do it the same way every single time. Yeah. However, you might still you might not be conscious of the fluidity. You might not be conscious quite of the speed. Mm-hmm. There's things that you're giving off that you're not always aware of, and so, so it's at the actual pushing of the chips, not the counting out of the chips before the actual pushing of the chips. So you could count. You could give fake tells or no tells with how you fumble with your chips. I'd or just, how yeah, you stack I'd just be them. Re- I'd just be really careful with yeah. trying to give off fake tells. Yeah, yeah. But so that one thing seemed to actually help. And you see that in a lot of areas where you end up being able to tell if someone is lying or telling the truth based on tiny things that you would never expect that aren't things like heart rate, just because it ends up being something that they're not thinking about because it's such a minor detail. You're so worried about controlling everything else, you know, about how your feet are placed on the floor, right. how you're sitting, just all of these things that you sometimes forget. How quickly am I moving the chips? In? Right. And it how also, does that gesture look? And also you could shut down your face. You could, you could still your body. But since you have to move, you do. You can try to do it the same every time. But since we're forcing that movement, it's the chance to get a read. Absolutely. Now, and the more tired you are, probably the more yes. the more likely you are to give something off. So you consulted with real experts and co- and coaches, yep. and you, you got coaching for this as part of your book and yep. your play. What do the experts, who are some, If I don't know if you care to mention, I think you have on your website. So who are some of the experts who coached you? Um, so Eric Seidel is the Eric's, person who's yeah. been coaching me. Is he a World Series champion? I know the name. No, he came in second. Second. He's in rounders. Yes, yes. So he's one of the greatest poker players in the world. What does he say about tells? Which might not be the right answer, but this is a really successful guy. Yeah, so most successful poker players don't rely on tells all that much because it can on the margin help you make a decision, but ultimately tells are really unreliable. And you have to have better information being given based on. Everyone, every great exactly. player knows the correct odds, but yeah. the betting patterns and there's yeah. so much information out there. And tells are not only unreliable, but you need so much data. You have to find the anomaly, right? To find when you're lying, you have to have lots of instances of you telling the truth, too, and lying. And you have to have immediate feedback. And then you have to start figuring out, okay, usually this correlates with lying. Even if you've been playing with someone for a long time. How many hands have you actually played together? How many times have you been in this similar situation? 
if this is a good player, they're probably controlling a lot of this stuff. So there aren't that many tells out there. And you have a lot of other things to rely on. So on the margin, it's not like you should ignore how people are acting, especially with amateur players, because, you know, if, if mm. this is your first big tournament, you might actually give off tells. I played with a guy once about four months ago who was just he had a tell that was so obvious it was kind of like the oreo cookie and he got so upset with me because i would call him with these crazy hands and he was like how could you do that what was and it? then tell me tell me <laughs> it was just his entire like when he was weak and when he didn't he just slumped like yeah. his entire presence like it was just like his posture just completely changed were you worried that he was trying to suck you in no no yeah. he was so unaware of it and then i got moved to another table and i was so sad yeah, yeah. no i've heard that i think we've talked about it on the show sometimes i'm playing poker and you have these real assholes who will say what do you have do you have it and look right at you yeah. and my reaction is always, you're a jerk but yeah. i have read and heard and i think it's true that when you're trying to make up information you look up into your left and we're trying to retrieve information no. up into your right no. that is that is bullshit yeah that is bullshit <laughs> that is bullshit although that is for some reason a common belief about lying but it's wrong however people do try to give off information to try to elicit information by asking questions and by talking yeah and oftentimes they end up giving off more information about their hand interesting than they I'm end going up to getting say that to the guy but i would yeah my advice is just don't talk yeah basically give off as little information as you can well what about so, the guy the unabomber there are guys on the professional tour who wear a hooded, sweat, yeah, hooded <laughs> sweatshirt drawn in yeah and every many people wear glasses that almost seems to be cheating i actually don't think it matters yeah. it's one of those things where like what are you actually if you're a good player those tells really aren't there the Do glasses think i think are for branding i think so at this <laughs> yeah, point yeah. <laughs> and the glasses are really just for intimidation and you lose information because you can't see quite as well when right. you're wearing sunglasses indoors. And so I don't actually think any of that is necessary if you know what you're doing. The only thing that I do is I wear headphones, noise-canceling headphones a lot of the time because a lot of people really annoy me. You're not missing out on information? You might be on a little bit, but um, to me, the trade-off is worth it, especially when I have, there are some players who are notorious for talking. Yeah. And when I see one of them at the table, the headphones come right on. Yeah. Okay. So now this is all, this is all a fascinating trip down tell lane, but we have to render our verdict. Yeah. I'll phrase it this way. Yeah. Using tells to your advantage as a poker player, is that bullshit? Usually, yes. You have a finite amount of energy. You have a finite amount of attention. If I were trying to play my best game, I would pay attention to other things. On the margin, tells do exist you should only use them as kind of a final yeah. weight in a decision rather than the thing that determines your decision, unless you have that guy who was sitting next to me at the slumper. tournament. Yes. Unless, you have, unless you have slumper at the Sit table right with here you. next to me, slumpy. Exactly. If slumpy's at your table, then by all <laughs> means use tells. And you know what? Sometimes you do get that. Sometimes you have the Oreo cookie guy at your table. I played with a guy once who every time he had a good hand, he licked yeah. his lips. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was beautiful. It was kind of wonderful. <laughs> so if you see something like that, by all means use it. But that is very, very rare. Maria Konnikova. Normally we defer to her because she is a learned woman who is an expert on psychology, but now she's also a poker champion, so we really have to. Maria Konnikova, author of the forthcoming book, The Biggest Bluff, in which she details how she beat everyone who ever won the World Series of Poker and stole their bracelets. And of course, the Is That Bullshit segment here on The Gist. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike.
And now the spiel. Yesterday, I was talking to Steven Pinker. Perhaps you knew that. Perhaps you heard. It was a good talk, and I'd commend you to it. Well, it happened yesterday, so I guess I wouldn't commend. I'd recommend. Recommend. It's etymology. Come to life on the gist. Anyway, Pinker, at some points, grapples with the question, why democracy? Why do we say democracy is the best form of government? It's a good question. The simple answer is, it leads to the best policies. Except... The jury's really out on that, and that's not the one that Pinker endorses. Now, there's the folk wisdom that uh, the reason it's the best is that it's not great, but it's better than all others, and that actually has a lot of logic to it. See, when democracy fails, it fails in this way. Wow, we got a tax hike that you and I didn't want, or some, some rancher got a grazing regulation that he didn't want to have to deal with. That's how it fails. If it stays a democracy, unless it crumbles and stops being a democracy, that's how it fails. But when a kingdom or a monarchy or an autocracy fails, it doesn't fail that well. When autocracies fail, and they can still stay autocracies, you're probably going to wind up in jail or at war. Other forms of government fail, like airplanes fail out of the sky and in a fiery mess. Democracies fail like a Ford built in 2017 fails with airbags and crumple zones. And by the way, crumple zones are, I think, the most underappreciated innovation of the second half of the 20th century. Do you know the engineer Bella Berenyi? Everyone should know this guy's name. I don't know if he saved as many lives as, say, Jonas Salk, but he saved tens of, I would say, easily hundreds of thousands of lives with crumple zones. Which gets me to my next point about democracy. Progress. We say that we want democracy because it will ensure the most progress, but that's not really true. What we really want and what we really hope that democracy does is to incorporate the desires of the people. Undergirding the entire gun argument that we've been having is the frustration of the feeling that nothing can be done. Even though the majority of people want something done, nothing can be done. And to this extent, just passing a law, which might not have a huge effect in terms of gun violence and gun deaths, would actually have a huge effect in terms of reassuring everyone that their government, their democracy, is functional. So, progress. To assess progress, and this is an outgrowth of my talk with Pinker and my reading of the book, there are lots of ways to do it. So how do we know if we had progress? One is the proof of the pudding is in the taste test. I don't like to say the proof is in the pudding because everyone gets confused. You understand what I mean when I say the proof of the pudding is in the taste. That's the full idiom. So you would think that the best policies would be apparent either immediately or over time, but that's not really true. I mean, sometimes there is progress, but it's only honored in the breach. Would I, as a New Yorker, really feel the safety of my city, which is true, and it is progress. But the thing that makes me look and examine the safety of my city is all these Cassandras telling me that America's urban centers are shooting galleries and carnage. So in reaction to that, wait a minute, is that true? I look around, I look at the stats, I kind of get in touch with my feelings of safety, and I say, that's not true. Lots of times progress gets kind of acknowledged, but not fully acknowledged, basically ignored. Yes, AIDS killed 48,000 people in 1995, and it killed 6,000 people in 2016. Now, HIV AIDS has gone from death sentence to a manageable disease like diabetes. And people know it. 
um, especially people in the gay community. There's still a group called the Gay Men's Health Crisis, and that's a good brand. You'd want to keep the name of the group. It's not as if HIV isn't a health crisis, but what the word crisis means has changed a lot. No one wants to throw a party or have a parade based on how much progress we've made with combating AIDS, but you know we do throw parties or have parades based on human accomplishment that are much less profound with the progress of AIDS. Another example of progress being made, and no one explicitly acknowledge it. You ready? I'm coming back to crumple zones. I was reading about Australia, and in 1996, a vast majority of Australian motorist surveys said, quote, cars that crumple are made of plastic and not as safe as older solid cars. Now Australians insist on crumple zone technology and the benefits of crumple zones. In fact, they insist on it without explicitly insisting on it. You can't even buy a car without crumple zones. And that has less to do with mandates and more to do with the fact that people demanded safer cars. They perhaps didn't know why and they couldn't articulate it was crumple zones. But guess what? It was a lot of things, but it was crumple zones. Sometimes progress gets originally labeled as lack of progress, and it turns out that's wrong. Let's go back to the assault rifle ban. It was said that it didn't do much, but it did do much. It brought down mass slaughters, but for Columbine, the period of the uh, 1994 to 2004 was a period compared with before and especially compared after of greatly depressed mass slaughter by firearm. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about democracy and how it works or how it's not been working. I was thinking about guns. And it's an interesting thing. To liberals, the democracy being dysfunctional registers one way. It registers as government failed us. We had hopes for government. We know government could make us safe, but it's not making us safe. And therefore it's a failing. Whereas conservatives, gun loving conservatives specifically, they always see government as failure. But when you think about it, what the government is doing in the case of gun policy is a success for them. There is a government policy. The government policy allows them to buy their AR-15s, but they're not crediting the government as having made a decision or having enacted policies that are good for them. People who love their AR-15s don't say government made us safe. They say their AR-15s make them safe. Government just didn't get in the way. It's odd and it's a self-perpetuating idea that there are two groups of people. One never put their faith in government. I see no mechanism where they ever would put their faith in government because if good things happen, they'll always credit something other than government. And the other group, liberals, sometimes their faith in government can be sustained, but other times it can be lessened. That doesn't seem to me a good situation for the brand government. And you want a worse brand? Bureaucrats. Here was uh, the reporter Rachel Bade on Face the Nation. However, I spoke with Jim Jordan, a conservative of the Freedom Caucus, the day after the president came out and supported this. And he said there's no way he's going to back it. He said, um, you know, this is a provision that would let bureaucrats take away the civil liberties of Americans. And that's exactly what you're going to hear from a lot of Republicans on the Hill. On the other hand, you do hear correctly criticism of the FBI by Democrats and Republicans. And the criticism is that the FBI didn't do enough to take the Florida shooter's guns. What do you think the FBI is, if not bureaucrats? The B stands for Bureau. They work for the Bureau. That's even how they abbreviate the FBI internally. They're bureaucrats. That is why we hire them. Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, opposes gun control measures because he says it would, quote, allow bureaucrats and administrators to take away an individual's Second Amendment liberties. Well, who's supposed to take away guns from insane people. The congressman from the 4th District of Ohio? 
Sure, Jim Jordan's a wrestler and therefore more plausible as an intervener than, say, the president of the United States would be, but it's still a bad, bad idea. We need our elected officials to stay in Washington, and we need our bureaucrats to steal the crazy people's guns. And what we should want out of government is progress. But the least we demand should be responsiveness. So as I've said before, we have this non-parliamentary system. Responsiveness is really, really hard. And it's really, really hard if you're one of the Americans who didn't vote for the majority party. And it's especially hard in America because we often get the situation where the majority of Americans didn't vote for the majority party. We know that Donald Trump didn't get the majority of the votes. In fact, someone else did. We know that it's often the case in the House of Representatives, like in 2012, Republicans got fewer votes than Democrats did nationally, but Republicans were the majority in the House. Now, last time around, Republicans in total did get 2% more votes than Democrats, but they have 10% more of the seats in the House of Representatives. But look at the Senate. 2016, Democratic senators got 6 million more votes than Republican senators did. And those 6 million more votes for Democrats meant that they won 12 races and Republicans won 22. Every American has two senators to represent him or her. The Democratic senators, or the two that caucus with the Democrats, represent 359 million Americans. Republican senators represent 281 million Americans. That's just the way the Senate works or doesn't, like government doesn't work. If we were in a better system of government, I would bargain away some aspects of gun legislation. Like if there were a school district where a vast majority of families were gun owners and super the superintendents of those districts were in favor and the teachers were in favor and parents were in favor, I would allow for the passage of local laws that would allow teachers to be armed in schools. I don't think it would solve the school shooting problem. In fact, I'm almost 100% sure it wouldn't. There's a larger chance that it would make the situation worse, but those populations would feel empowered. And even if it did make the situation worse, well, that would be the result that the people demanded. And right now, our problem is that relatively few of us are getting the results we demand. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname was glued to Nora's Hair Salon 2. So many unanswered questions from Nora's Hair Salon 1. Would Janelle conquer split ends? Would Ananda get an updo? Don't worry, they did make a Nora's Hair Salon 3. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, enjoyed Mo Money, but not the Stacey Dash film. This was the Mo Money that was a documentary about the personal finances of Arizona Representative Mo Udall. The books were in order. It's kind of well, a little bit boring. Steve Lick, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, greatly enjoys Mo Money 2, Mo Mo Money, which is a documentary about CBS Sunday morning contributor Mo Rocca's making of the aforementioned Mo Udall documentary. The gist, our favorite experimental film is Slow Mo. It's just a 30-second chunk of that Mo Udall documentary. It's slowed down to one frame per minute. It's played on a loop. They got an NEA grant for it, which Mo Udall actually opposed. It's all documented there in slow-mo. It just takes a while to get to. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.